friends and enemies, welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode four of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. In our last episode, I covered roughly half of the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers Baby Stars of 1923. Go back and have a listen to learn all about Evelyn Brent, Virginia Brown Fair, Betty Francisco, Helen Lynch, Dearless Purdue, Jobina Ralston, and Pauline Garon. Before I get to the other six stars, I simply must tell you about the great drama surrounding the Wampus Fellas in 1923. Under the leadership of their new president, Joseph A. Jackson, the publicity men were facing one of their biggest challenges to date. They wanted a new clubhouse at the beach. They had the funds from the ticket sales to the Wampus Frolic and Ball, but where to put it? Actually, well, that's true, they did set out to find a beachy home base, with the Exhibitor's Herald reporting... The screen scribes are already buying new bathing suits in anticipation of the frolic at their new seaside home-to-be. But they found a perfect location pretty seamlessly, deciding on a bungalow seven miles north of Santa Monica Canyon, overlooking the Blue Pacific. It was christened the Wampus Roost. I've said it before. I'll say it again. They were very cute. No, the real problem was with Screenland magazine. Fan magazines had a symbiotic relationship with the Wampus and the studios that the Wampus worked for. Stars drew readers to magazines, magazines drew readers to stars, and thus to films, and yay, everybody makes money. The general way it operated was that the publications, though independent, would follow the party line for whatever the studios wanted, lest they risk losing access to the material the stars and stories they needed in order to sell copies. Wampus themselves often wrote pieces directly for the magazines, and there was a general overlap between the two sides. So you can imagine how pissed off the Wampus were when Screenland went rogue. A mid-range publication, Screenland had included some stories in 1923 that made the studios and the Wampus guys go, the fuck you just say? This included a piece about Mary Pickford jealously demanding that her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, get a new leading lady more than once, another implying that 1922 baby star Claire Windsor wore a wig, and an insulting comment about Alice Terry's ankles. The Wampus demanded that Screenland clean up its act or face a press agent boycott backed by Will Hayes' office. Screenland basically said that they'd think about it, but that they'd also fight for freedom. In October, Fairbanks and Pickford went so far as to sue the publishers for libel and slander. The boycott happened, and the next year Screenland faced bankruptcy. After a change in editorial leadership, they survived and a truce appears to have been made, but this was a power move by the Wampas with far-reaching consequences. A decade later, fan magazines had to submit their articles in advance for approval by the Hayes office. But back in 1923, I still have more baby stars to tell you about. Let's begin, shall we? 
Eleanor Boardman. Born in Philadelphia in 1898, Eleanor Boardman didn't arrive until Hollywood until around 1922. But once she did, she wasted no time. Having before only appeared on stage mostly in the chorus, she won, along with William Haynes, Goldwyn Pitcher's New Faces of 1922 contest, beating out 1,000 other competitors. The New Faces contest was on to something, as Billy Haynes went on to have a fantastic career until he stepped away from stardom in the early 1930s after refusing to hide his homosexuality. But back to Boardman. So, she arrived in Hollywood, already labeled as one to watch, and Goldwyn quickly got to work, putting her name and face out there. If you ever feel like screaming and screaming over our modern beauty standards, allow me to add to your general sense that women just can't fucking win and never have by reading how Photoplay described the perfect on-screen lady in their September 1922 edition. The ideal girl, from a photographic point of view, is the girl who stands not above five feet five inches, with a slender, pliant figure, with large eyes and dark and set wide apart, with cheekbones which are not too high and hard, with an upper lip which is not too short, with a small, well-shaped mouth, with a rounded chin not too prominent but not receding, and a round face rather than one which is a pronounced oval. Eleanor Boardman, in her debut year, apparently possessed all of these vague characteristics, except that she was too tall. Still, it all added to her buzz, and it made sense for Wampus to put her on their 1923 baby stars list. Within a couple of years, while no one could accuse Eleanor of not being almost absolutely perfect, it became readily apparent that, despite checking off all of these ideal characteristics, she was no cookie-cutter performer. Eleanor was a bit... unusual. Her earliest coverage hints at something. She possesses the combined pose of a Follies queen, a traffic cop, and a cash girl in a department store, says Photoplay in September 23. So she's calm, cool, and collected, but not particularly elegant? It took a few years of fashion posts and puff pieces before the fan magazines started really acknowledging that Eleanor was a different sort of character than her peers. Picture Play Magazine, September 1927, puts it this way. Eleanor Boardman is remarkable for her fine poise, alert mind, and cold beauty. She is neither dizzy nor dazzling, but when she voices an opinion, there is an eagle on her shoulder. Another blurb from the same magazine earlier that year reads, Friendly advice. Eleanor Boardman seems to be a very charming lady. But Eleanor, why, oh why, wear dresses that touch the floor, part your hair in the middle, and bring it straight back into a severe knot? I doubt Helen of Troy, Cleopatra, Lillian Russell, and Corinne Griffith would be beautiful if dressed in such a fashion. So basically, she dressed in an unfashionable manner, wore her hair in what was dubbed an unbecoming style. Photoplay commented on this as well, wondering in print if she was dressing so absolutely terribly for attention. Was Eleanor Boardman the Julia Fox of her time? You know, dressing to provoke a certain reaction? Cal York 
who wasn't a real person, by the way, wrote, She wears gowns so startlingly unbecoming that a whole dinner party will comment upon them in startled whispers. Plain, tight bodices and very long skirts touching the floor. Not with the charming bouffant effects, but just plain, long skirts. The colors are always drab, black, or full gray, or white, which a girl of Miss Boardman's medium coloring should never attempt at night. Certainly she attracts attention, and if that is the object of her very unusual style creations, she is successful. But I, for one, have never liked to see a pretty woman make a freak of herself just to be different. Proof that some people have never been able to handle anyone dressing outside of the norm. But with modern sensibilities, it is quite rich to hear a long skirt and drab colors being described as freakish. I think if Cal York ever met a punk, he'd faint. If he were real. With so much attention being paid to her ugly clothes and bad hair, it might be easy to forget that during this whole time, Eleanor was trying to become a movie star with somewhat mixed results. Despite the Wampus giving her a big trophy in 1926 for making the most progress out of any of their list of baby stars since the inception of the baby stars list, in reality, Eleanor was still at contract player level as far as everyone else was concerned. Technically, she had starring roles, but not in many big pictures. The same year that she got that trophy, Eleanor married director King Vidor after a long romance. 1928 finally saw the release of what is easily the most important film of her career, The Crowd. Directed by her husband, The Crowd is now considered to be one of the masterpieces of silent film. Her sensitive and nuanced performance is a standout. This failed to launch Eleanor Boardman into superstardom. And she only made a few more films. This was partially because she and Vidor had two children, which, you know, takes up a gal's time. The couple also got caught up in a little tax trouble, which made the news and cost them a few thousand dollars in fines. After basically retiring from films in the early 1930s, she divorced her husband on the grounds of adultery, something that all his wives found cause to do. Anyway, her film career was entirely done by 1935, though she continued to appear in the gossip pages. Like in 1936, when Movie Mirror took a moment to make fun of her for going to a concert and wearing a small hat simply reeking with paradise feathers. Jesus Christ, can't a woman live? But anyway, were the Wampus right? They were. She was a star. But... I think they were pretty off the mark, giving her that big trophy. Kathleen Key Kathleen Key claimed early on to be a descendant of Francis Scott Key, who, if you are an American history buff, and I'm not, you may know as the man who wrote the lyrics to The Star-Spangled Banner. I had to look that up. And before anyone gets prissy about that, do you know who Adolphe Basile Routier or Robert Stanley Weir are? Exactly. Also, neither do I, but Google says that they wrote the French and English versions of O Canada. Anyway, this connection to a historical figure is tenuous at best. 
Kathleen wasn't even a key. She was a Lanahan originally, born likely in 1903 in Buffalo, New York. Sometime in 1919, she made her way to Hollywood, where she began appearing in background roles or as atmosphere for Thomas Ince Studios. Ince had been one of the most influential and successful producer-directors of the 19-teens, though by 1920 his power was diminishing as an independent producer with the rise of the studio system. This is unrelated entirely to Kathleen Key's story, but Ince's 1924 death remains one of the most intriguing Hollywood mysteries of all time. Or perhaps the official report of heart failure is true. Anyway, in spring of 1920, Kathleen was selected, with not a single credited role to her name, to travel to Australia to star in The Jackaroo of Coolabong. This was the third film in a series starring Snowy Baker, a popular Aussie action star and former boxer, former swimmer, former rugby star. This guy did it all. And he was the type to tell you about how he did it all, including, of course, all his own stunts, horse riding, diving, and fights. I don't know about you, but I'm picturing Zap Brannigan from Futurama with an Australian accent. This must have been pretty exciting, but overwhelming for Kathleen. Here she was on the other side of the world, the Australian outback no less, with basically no experience, paired with this brash action man. If she managed to not get eaten by her crocodile, surely this would be the start of something huge. Unfortunately, the jackaroo of Coolabong, now lost, was the least successful of Snowy Baker's adventure series. He left Australia for America himself later that year, and Kathleen returned home to Hollywood a bit humbled. Once back on American soil, her exciting adventure down under must have felt like a distant memory to Kathleen as she busily got back to work playing supporting roles. Still, it makes sense that in 1923 she was picked for the Wampus Baby Stars list, especially as she had just signed a long-term contract with the Goldman Stock Company, and had finally been made a leading lady again, opposite an American action hero, this time, Tom Mix. That same year, while celebrating her new successes, Picture Play Magazine's September issue lamented her comparably slow rise with an article titled, The Girl Who Couldn't Simp. No, it wasn't written by a Gen Z time traveler, and yes, they were using simp essentially in the same meaning as the slang has today. Unless I'm misunderstanding how simp is used today, it is entirely possible. I am so old. So tired. The article explained that Kathleen, with her dark hair and cynical nature, was incapable of playing meek, weak, and simpering. And yet also with her humor and humility, she was not the traditional vamp either. Ergo, casting her was practically impossible. In a way, with the picture play piece, the Goldwyn Publicity Department was declaring that while they were excited about what may come in regards to Kathleen Key's career, no one could blame them if it didn't work out. And it didn't. Despite some high-profile films in the next couple of years, namely a role in the 1925 epic Ben-Hur that apparently mostly ended up on the cutting room floor, Kathleen's career never did take off in any tangible way. Blame was put on her difficulty to typecast, as I mentioned above, and also because she didn't fit in with the slim body type becoming increasingly popular in the 1920s. As one review put it in Motion Picture News 1927, Kathleen Key is quite pretty, but becoming quite a buxom lass. 
Other reports paint her as somewhat caustic. I'm always saying the wrong thing to the right people, Pitcher Play quotes her as saying in March 1927. They later refer to her brutal frankness and say that she wisecracks and even insults beautifully. Impossible to cast as a type, out of step with the fashionable physical standards of the time, and rather rude, Kathleen's career was functionally over by the end of the decade. Now, there will be some among you who recognize Kathleen Key's name for a different reason than her on-screen appearances, and you've probably been waiting for me to just get to it already. Yes, Kathleen Key attacked Buster Keaton in 1931. They had been having an affair for some time. This was during the tail end of Buster's unhappy marriage to Natalie Talmadge. And, of course, there are different versions of events, but basically, it seems that Keaton ended the relationship with Kathleen and then offered her a payoff to just go away. She either demanded more money and then flew into a rage when denied, or flew into a rage at the romantic rejection, or a combination of both, and ended up trashing his dressing room and physically assaulting Buster. The papers at the time told a different story, admitting the affair and claiming that the assault happened after a friendly wager went wrong. In their versions, supported by Buster himself, who was attempting to avoid scandal, Kathleen had lamented to her old friend, Buster, that she'd like to return to movies. He told her that to do it, she would need to lose 20 pounds, and he bet her 20k that she couldn't do it. When she failed to lose the weight, Buster still paid her $5,000 out of the kindness of his heart, but regardless, she was enraged and became violent. Oh, it's such a fatphobic way to avoid a scandal. I hate it. I don't know if anyone really believed this bullshit story. Maybe rather than believe a man could be the victim of intimate partner violence, it felt more believable in 1931 that a woman would become out of control with rage over her weight. Of course, that's inconscionable and nonsense. But either way, that was truly it for any hope Kathleen may have had for a movie comeback. There's no excuse for Kathleen's behavior, but the picture painted of her as a sharp-tongued lady feels telling to me about her real personality. It screams a defensiveness, likely masking a fragile ego, one that frankly spent the better part of a decade being rejected. That's a dangerous cocktail. And whatever happened, she snapped. The Wampus, of course, were inaccurate with their prediction as far as Kathleen Key was concerned. Dorothy DeVore Born Anne Inez Williams in 1899, Dorothy DeVore was a comedy actress gaining momentum when she landed on the Wampus Baby Stars list of 1923. She worked for the Christie brothers, specifically Al, who were leaders in the silent comedy genre. While they worked with a wide variety of talents, the bread and butter of the Christie Company were comedies starring beautiful young ladies. Dorothy worked perfectly for them. At just five foot one, she was petite and pretty, and as eager to hop on a motorcycle for a chase scene as she was to don a wig and a costume that looked just like Kristen Wiig's Gilly character from Saturday Night Live. 
She hung off buildings. She got stuck in snowbanks. She played a character called Hazelnut. What couldn't she do? Dorothy's first roles were in one-reel pictures, but she graduated to two-reelers right around the same time she was earmarked for Big S Startup by the Wampus. A print ad promoting her reads, Dorothy DeVore Comedies, A Clever Comedian, A Beautiful Girl, A Daredevil at Thrill Stunts, Alone in Her Field as the Star of Two-Reel Comedies, Dorothy DeVore, with a Tremendous Fan Following. A two-reeler, by the way, is still considerably shorter than a feature-length film, usually around 20 minutes. The term refers to the literal reels of film that were sent out to movie theaters to be played on their projectors. Longer the film, more reels. They would be played as collections or as an opening act to a longer picture. Two-reelers were extremely popular and made quickly and cheaply. As far as audience impact is concerned... I'd say the parallels are with television stars. Well, fans couldn't see Dorothy DeVore in a new comedy scenario literally every week, they definitely were catching her several times a year. This familiarity bred devotion, and indeed, she had a tremendous fan following. In 1924, wanting to capitalize on Dorothy's popularity and take a big step forward in their production output, the Christie Company released its first feature-length film, Hold Your Breath starred Dorothy DeVore as a would-be reporter chasing after a monkey jewel thief. If that isn't a recipe for a great movie, I don't know what is. But, of course, I am the proud owner of a DVD copy of Dunstan Checks In. And yes, Dunstan is an orangutan, so maybe you shouldn't trust me after all. It looks like only about half of Hold Your Breath survives today, but in it you can see that Dorothy had great physicality and comedic timing. And it really seemed in the lead-up to the film's release that this was going to take DeVore to the next level. And then she quit the Christie Company. I can't quite make sense of her decision to jump ship. The Christies were putting their full backing in her. Hold Your Breath was a hit, and they were happy to loan her out for variety's sake. But clearly, she wasn't happy. And she signed with Warner Brothers in the summer of 1924. Now, I can't say with 100% certainty that she would have been a bigger success had she just stuck with the Christie Company. There she was trying to be a comedy star, and she was good at it. But there is always a patriarchal, misogynist bullshit for women in comedy to have to trudge through. That said, she was trudging through successfully before she quit. Take this review of Hold Your Breath. There are two things that I have always maintained that the average woman can't do properly. One being to drive an automobile, and the other is to play comedy leads in pictures. Still, there are many expert lady drivers, and when it comes to playing a comedy lead, my sky piece is off to Dorothy DeVore. She's just dandy in this picture. That niblet of fuckery is from a theater owner in Princeton, Illinois, called W.O. Stevens. Yes, I am naming and shaming. If that is your great-grandpa, please know that he was a prick. But even he could admit that DeVore was funny. Warner Brothers had no sweet clue what to do with Dorothy, though. They wasted her talents and then came up with one final insulting idea. Play a supporting role to a dog. Not just any dog, Dorothy. Rin Tin Tin. 
He's the real star. She told them, essentially, politely, that they could fuck right off, and bought out her contract early in 1926. Dorothy kind of went back to playing two real comedies with her tail between her legs. It's obvious that she was aiming for the big leagues when she quit the Christie Company, but of course she had to save face and claim that her one true passion was comedy shorts all along when it didn't work out. I like to think that what really happened, though, was that she used the opportunity to stretch her legs a bit and see what else was out there. And I think I'm right, because when she did make her return to the world of comedy, she did so with some, to pardon the term, boss bitch energy. Dorothy signed a deal with Educational Pictures Corporation to produce her own films under the banner Dorothy DeVore Two Real Comedies. She was able to have full control over her own projects, and they were very popular with audiences straight up until the advent of sound. Who can say what Dorothy DeVore could have achieved had she stuck with the momentum of her work at the Christie Company? Perhaps she really did need to try and fail at a different studio to have the inspiration and drive to take on her own series. Sound, sadly, spelled the end of her Hollywood career. Was the Wampus right? Eh, not in the way they likely predicted, or as Dorothy DeVore had hoped. But she forged her own path and took no shit. So she's a winner in my books. Laura LaPlante Laura LaPlante was still a teenager when she joined the Christie Company around the same time as Dorothy DeVore. But, unlike Dorothy, Laura really was made for bigger things than two real pictures. After a number of comedy shorts with Christie, Laura was borrowed by Charles Ray to be his leading lady. A couple of interesting things about the news snippet regarding this in October 20th, 1920 edition of the trade paper Close-Up. First, it says that Laura is 17, and I actually think she may have only been 16. Even back then, 16 would have been considered very young to be a romantic lead. Secondly, it makes a joke about Charles Ray moving all of his operations to the Christie Studios lot as it would facilitate the matter of getting girls. Ew. Anyway, with The Old Swimming Hole, released in early 1921, young Laura was off and running. Kind of. Before she could really run, she signed with Universal the following year, and they tested her out, for lack of a better word, in two extremely exciting-sounding serials, Perils of the Yukon and Around the World in 18 Days. Both are believed to be lost, but we can safely say that she nailed the test because Universal quickly put their full support behind her. When it came time to make the Wampus Baby Stars list in 1923, the syndicate from Universal knew that Laura LaPlante was their perfect pick because of all the usual reasons. She was gorgeous, she had dimples for Christ's sake, she was charming, she could act, and because of all the projects they had slated for her that year. This isn't going to be one of those times that I do a bait-and-switch and tell you sadly it didn't work out that way and she never became a star, because she did. The following year, Universal was so confident in Laura's popularity that they had her carrying two films all on her own. There's a wonderful spread in Universal Weekly, the April 12, 1924 edition, 
That was a guide given to movie exhibitors, independent theaters, to encourage them to prioritize Universal's films, which was a necessity because the studio did not have a dedicated distribution affiliation. Universal's Great Spring Drive is on, declares Universal Weekly in a series of special pink pages with purple ink. If they want excitement, give them Laura LaPlante in excitement. If they want pretty girls, give them Laura LaPlante in The Dangerous Blonde. She's further described as a magnetic personality who will bring your patrons out in droves. She was, and she did. When you look at Laura's publicity over these early years, she rarely gets attention in non-universal publications. The fan magazines, who worked closely with the studios, appear to be practically ignoring her. I believe that this has to be because of Universal's resource spread. Though the studio produced some of the best-remembered films of the silent era, it had a roller coaster reputation. And without that dedicated distribution arm that the other studios had, much of the budget had to go towards advertising Universal's films to independent movie theaters, rather than advertising directly to the public. There was a change around 1926, when for a brief period Laura was getting more outside press. Laura LaPlante has arrived, declared Screenland that July. That same year she appeared in Picture Play and Photo Play, who rather snarkily captioned their photo of her with an instruction that she should fight for better and milder titles, but had to admit that Laura proves box offices prefer blondes too. What happened in 1926? Well, to a degree, Laura was just too beloved to ignore. Fans wanted to read about her and would pay to do so. But some personnel developments at Universal appear to have played a part, too. Sam B. Jacobson joined the Universal Press Department as an assistant in 1925. This wampus was something special. Jacobson was a genuine innovator, eventually a creative producer and a champion of sound technology, and starting the same year Laura LaPlante started getting big publication attention, Jacobson was rising the ranks in his department, frequently filling in for his boss, Tom Reed. By December 1927, Jacobson was the publicity director at Universal. He was also a delight. He wrote about his history, which he called my somewhat questionable past, and new appointment in Hollywood Topics, cussed and discussed all over the world, in the February 12, 1927 edition, saying, Now I'm at Universal, a loyal and faithful employee. I have never been late, and I'm a hard and conscientious worker. I don't drink, smoke, nor chew, and I never, ever use bad language. He goes on to add that if anyone wants his brochure, Jacobson's Method of Proper Living, they should send him 25 cents, and he'll include a snappy bathing beauty photograph in plain sealed paper. Oh no, have I developed a crush on a long-dead wampus? Apologies to my husband. I don't believe Jacobson had any special interest in Laura LaPlante. I believe that he had a special interest in advertising Universal's pictures, and Laura LaPlante was the feather in Universal's cap. He was smart enough to finally start using this major asset to the organization. 
1927 saw one of the most important films of Laura LaPlante's career, still known to horror connoisseurs today, The Cat and the Canary. This macabre comedy horror was the origin of the old dark house genre and influenced the likes of James Whale, Alfred Hitchcock, and William Castle. In it, Laura played her typical fresh-faced heroine, but in a decidedly darker environment. The next few years were busy ones, with Laura maintaining her popularity with fans up until the sound era. Her time with Universal, which lasted the better part of a decade, came to an end around 1930. I couldn't find any instance where they had loaned her out to another studio, which is atypical and means that the overwhelming bulk of her career was with just one way of doing things, one studio culture. You take that and the influx of new talent arriving in the late 1920s, and it's no wonder that even with a perfectly pleasant voice, the advent of the talkies basically marked the beginning of the end for Laura LaPlante's career. She did continue to work well into the 1930s, but nothing had the impact or the shine of her universal days. Though she was rumored to replace Myrna Loy in the Thin Man series, that never happened, which is good for Myrna, and for me, because I'm a big fan, but of course unfortunate for Laura. Save for a couple of later one-off roles, her career was fundamentally over by 1935. Still, the Wampas certainly were correct for a time. Margaret Leahy The Talmadge sisters were huge stars in 1923. Norma, who specialized in melodramas, was the second most popular star that year as per the Quigley Top 10 Money-Making Stars poll. Constance was a charismatic fan favorite in comedies. And Natalie existed, too. In 1922, Norma and Constance Talmadge, along with Norma's powerful studio executive husband, Joseph M. Schenck, traveled to the United Kingdom in search for new faces for filmdom. It was there that they selected Margaret Leahy from 80,000 contestants in a beauty pageant sponsored by the Daily Sketch newspaper. In Motion Picture News, the December 16, 1922 edition, it reads, This 80,000 was gone over carefully, and, and from this number, 100 girls were picked by 20 committees, composed of mayors, mayoresses, members of parliament, newspaper editors, etc., throughout Great Britain and Ireland. The 100 dwindled to 20, who were given screen tests and Margaret Leahy won the contest. When the party returned to America with 20-year-old Margaret in tow, they were met by thousands of adoring fans. Norma Talmadge had high expectations for her new British protege, and arranged a contract for her with First National Pictures. She also announced that Margaret would feature in her next picture, Within the Law. As 1923 dawned, publicity for this unknown and untested British beauty queen ramped up at Norma's and First National's insistence. Her Cinderella-like story was told again and again how she was plucked from obscurity and named Britain's most beautiful girl, how the Talmadge sisters, particularly Norma, were basically her fairy godmothers who would guide her to stardom. The Wombas didn't announce their 1923 winners until April, but as early as February, 
there were rumblings of trouble in the tale of Margaret Leahy. You see, when Within the Law began filming, director Frank Lloyd immediately was like, what am I supposed to do with her? It turned out she couldn't act way out of a paper bag, and even her mentor Norma Talmadge couldn't keep her in the film. Fired from Within the Law, Joseph Shank hastily got her into the Buster Keaton film Three Ages. The Motion Picture Studio, a British film trade paper, the February 3rd, 1923 edition, scathingly summed up the situation. Margaret Leahy is still being boomed, though the more hysterical portion of the gush seems to be on the wane. The fact that she was found unsuitable for the originally designated part in Within the Law, and is now relegated to playing opposite a famous slapstick comedian who invariably dominates his own clever comedies, points to the realisation on everybody's part that stars cannot be made from shop girls overnight. Do people still say, oh snap? Three Ages was Buster Keaton's first feature-length film. He more or less got saddled with Margaret as his leading lady due to family stuff. He was married at the time to the other Talmadge sister, Natalie. Now, despite this switcheroo in her debut role, the buzz around Three Ages was big enough that it was easy for most publications to spin the news more favorably. It wasn't that she was a terrible actor, it was that she was so gifted at comedy, and she'll prove it to you when the film comes out. But before that could happen, she was named a Wampus Baby Star with exactly zero credits. It goes against the criteria that the Wampus set out, but that just demonstrates how much influence the likes of Norma and Constance Talmadge had. At least publicly, the sisters had her back. But privately, they had come to the realization that no amount of cheerleading or mentorship was going to turn Margaret Leahy into an actress. When Three Ages was released, it did nothing to change that opinion. This review from Photoplay, November 1923, though nasty, sums up the general consensus. Margaret Leahy, the Talmadge's English importation, is as wooden as a chubby little blonde girl can be. Three Ages would be Margaret Leahy's only film. She returned to the UK after only around seven months in Hollywood. According to the Motion Picture Studio, December 29, 1923 edition, she promptly sued the Daily Sketch, the newspaper who would put on the beauty contest she won, as well as Joseph Schenck, Norma, and Constance Talmadge for breach of contract, fraudulent misrepresentation, conspiracy, and libel. It appears to have been dismissed, but I could find no more juicy details. Of all the Wampus Baby stars, certainly of 1923, Margaret Leahy holds the record as the biggest miss on the part of the Wampus, and with her single film, had by far the shortest career. Ethel Shannon Ethel Shannon, a pretty Titian-haired girl from Denver, makes her film debut in the new Burt Lytell picture from Metro, It's Easy to Make Money, announces Moving Picture World in May 1919. Variety called it a highly improbable story weak comedy vehicle for Lytell. But still, for Ethel, who is around 21 and had only before appeared as an extra, this was an exciting turn of events, and it launched her career. 
She also later became briefly engaged to the scenario writer of It's Easy to Make Money, Finnis Fox, which I mostly mention because that's such a cool name. Anyway, Ethel quickly got the attention of Universal and director Roland Sturgeon, who cast her in a supporting role in The Breath of the Gods, 1920. Though now lost, The Breath of the Gods was considered to be one of Universal's jewels, a prestige production. Pretty good, considering Ethel was only about a year into her film career. Still unsigned, Ethel made a number of pictures over the next couple of years that got her good reviews, but no long-term contract until 1923. What had taken so long? Well, if you cast your mind back to Eleanor Boardman's story and the picture of an ideal screen star, one couldn't be too tall, couldn't have cheekbones that were too high, and though it wasn't on that particular list, one couldn't be too petite either. When she finally was signed in 1923 by B.P. Schulberg at Preferred Pictures, Wampus member Ray Leak had a lot to say in camera. You're ready. It's a doozy. Enter the 98-pound starlet. Ethel Shannon, declared to be the living embodiment of the little disturber, as conceived by D.W. Griffith, again had lived up to her practice of attaining success by violating all of the precedents of the picture industry, just when most producers are agreeing that the stately made of man-sized inches should be the future vogue, Miss Shannon has been signed for a long-term contract of years to enact future roles in special productions. The tiniest adult star in captivity. Ethel's size was a reoccurring theme in her publicity, which ramped up with her preferred pitcher's contract, which, of course, coincided with her appearance on the Wampus list. You know how it's pretty common practice for particularly thin stars to insist upon how much they eat? I don't diet, I only eat cheeseburgers, I promise. This is just from exercise and my once-a-day laxative smoothie that you can buy on my Instagram. Thinness may be the societal ideal, but admitting to taking any steps to achieve it can be met with derision. Anyway, it turns out this isn't new. Ethel was frequently described by her small size, but also her publicity team took special care in mentioning that being teeny-tiny was beyond her control. It may well have been, but it remains an interesting thing to keep mentioning. For example, Ray Leak was at it again in camera, saying, Ethel Shannon, tiniest of the screen players, keeps her 98 pounds of femininity fit on noonday repeats of cream puffs, iced tea, and the alluring soft drinks dispensed at the fountain. Regardless of the validity of her predominantly cream puff diet, Ethel was getting great press, solid reviews, and interesting parts, though none of her films had been very successful. Reportedly, she was the Wampus Men's first choice for 1923. Such was the vigor of her buzz. The buzz continued into the next year with the release of Daughters of the Rich and Maytime, which had Ethel spending part of the film in old lady makeup. Delightful. During filming of that production, though unfortunately not while she was in aged makeup, she zipped out to elope with an insurance broker named Robert Carey. Now, given her mostly good reviews, there was a delightfully snide piece in Picture Play that said she had been miscast in Maytime and lukewarmly publicized as a flapper, but most of the reviews were okay, so you could have expected Schulberg would have kept up the push. The problem was that he seems to have only been able to handle one star at a time, and once he signed Clara Bow, 
Ethel was firmly on the back burner, so she left. She was a bit aimless for a couple of years, working plenty but without a home studio. She got in with Gotham Pictures in 1926. Gotham didn't produce high-end films. Her work with them includes The Speed Limit, the poster of which reads, Pep, Laughs, Punch, which I want to read as an instruction, and The Sign of the Claw, which was really a star vehicle for a German shepherd named Peter the Great. So, professionally, things weren't going fantastically for Ethel. Personally, though, things were looking up. While her marriage to the insurance guy was over, she had fallen in love with one Joseph A. Jackson. You might recall his name from earlier in the program. Yes, years later, Ethel had fallen head over heels for the man who became president of the Wampus the very year that she was named a baby star. It's possible that she didn't really pay much attention to him back then, in the sea of publicity men, or simply that the timing wasn't right in 1923, as Joseph had recently been widowed. He married starlet Marjorie Manning in 1921, and just over a year later she died from a long illness at just 24. Joseph then spent the next few years throwing himself into his work, eventually becoming a screenwriter as well as a publicity man, and, indeed, quite the Hollywood Society feature. In 1927, Pitcherplay said this of him, He attends every first night, goes to every party, and makes public addresses on the slightest provocation. He is a boulevardier, man about town, club man, and socialite. Ethel and Joseph married in 1927, at which point she officially gave up her already withering career. Deeply in love, they had a son, and looked poised for a long and happy life together. Tragically, Joseph drowned in 1932, not long before his 38th birthday. Ethel Memory married. It's hard to say that the Wampus were wrong about selecting Ethel Shannon for their baby star's list. I mean, yes, they were wrong, as she didn't reach the level of stardom anyone had hoped for. But one Wampus in particular, Joseph Jackson, found his star in the 1923 group, eventually, and all too briefly for them both. Wipe away a tear as we conclude the Wampus Baby Stars of 1923. Next week, we have a new year and a new crop of baby stars ready to hand their dreams over to Hollywood. If you've been enjoying the Old Movie Lady podcast, The Wampus Frolic, please leave a review wherever you've been listening. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.